0: Well, good evening, church. Uh, if you notice, we've got some guests here from Cedarville and a few random guests. Our girl Grace from our Gen Z team uh, brought her uh, roommate and just wanted to spend a weekend in Boston. So it's great to have you here. And Cedarville, thanks for joining us as well. well guys, make them feel welcome. Uh, if you are a guest, we want to let you know we've been in a series in Ephesians for a long time. And we finally came to chapter Six And all of our members and all of our people are like, we have almost there. We almost finished the book. Well, today's passage is a really unique passage. As you've looked at that, uh, it had this concept of spiritual warfare. We talked about there's uh, forces of evil and there's a devil and he has schemes. And that might seem pretty odd to us if maybe you're new to Christianity or you're exploring what this is. But what we've been doing in the book of Ephesians, guys, is uh, since chapter four, we've been looking at something in the Bible. We've been looking at how the gospel has an impact on our relationships and our, our church and our, our community in the world around us. Uh, we learned the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about what is the gospel. The last part of the Bible is, or this book is, how does the gospel make an impact? And so today we're asking this question, how does the gospel make an impact on spiritual warfare. So if you're taking notes, that's the title. How does the gospel make an impact on spiritual warfare? I wanna give you my work cited on the front end. Uh, I wanna give a shout out to the NIV application series, uh, Tim Keller, uh, JD Greer, TNTC commentary. Guys, I pulled a ton of resources from those materials to make this message. So I wanna be honest and give you that from the the front end. Uh, Now this topic of spiritual warfare uh, feels really, really sci-fi-y. Did anyone grow up in just a in, a, in a church or in a home that treated spiritual warfare really oddly? Okay, a couple of people. Yeah. So when you hear spiritual warfare, you're like, oh, dude, I don't, I don't know. Because maybe you grew up thinking like demons were behind everything that happened bad for you in your life. And they had to be casted out of your TV and out of your shoes if they didn't tie right or out of your car, if the engine broke or something like that. But for some of you, you might be like, I don't, really know what you mean by spiritual warfare. Like, I don't believe in demons. And do you really expect me to believe in demons? I know this is sci-fi, right? It's 21st century. And am I really expecting you to believe all these things? Like, and if you do, how are they even relevant for your life? Well, in today's text, Paul is detailing for us just how real and just how relevant spiritual warfare is in your life. See, for the Ephesian people where this book is written to, this is a really relevant issue for them. Uh, if Ephesus, the city, was a really spiritualistic city. They had lots of occult activity and they were very familiar with demons. Plus everybody in the church at the time, they knew that story in Acts chapter 19. If you guys remember that story, that was about a demon beating the literal pants off of the sons of Sceva. <laughs> really weird story when demons beat you up and you're left naked. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Can that happen? And the church of Ephesus was like really familiar with that story. And they're like, I hope that doesn't happen to us. So when Paul starts addressing spiritual warfare in this passage, they're all like sitting up and they're like, yeah, how do we not end up naked today? Because demons will beat us up. So they were like, I'm new to this, help me understand. But they're really paying attention so they don't leave the service naked because of a demon. And so you're not going to leave the service naked, Lord willing, okay. But you should also pay attention to what this has to say about spiritual warfare. Because really all jokes aside, spiritual warfare is a serious thing. Demons are real. The devil is real and have a real impact on the world. And so if that's not your framework, I ask that you'd lean in today and maybe consider what the Bible has to teach about these issues. Now, I know this is very different for us because many in our culture, again, they don't believe in demons or the devil. And maybe that's where you are today. But as odd as scary as it sounds, you actually might have encountered demons. In fact, the Bible says you most certainly have, and frequently. Now, they've adjusted their strategy, and we see that word schemes in the Bible here. It seems that they've adjusted their strategy from the first century to the 21st century, and so they appear differently today as they did then. So we've got to figure out in this passage, how do we fight back against these forces? What does that mean? What are you talking about armor? Like, we don't even wear armor anymore. We're in Boston. We wear parkas. Like, we don't wear armor. Like, we don't have helmets and swords. Like, if you go to the House, maybe there's little plastic swords that they're fighting with. But they're not—we don't carry around real warfare things like this. So here's the three things we're going to unpack today. Like, who are we fighting Number two, what are we fighting? Number three, how are we to fight? If you're taking notes again, who are we fighting? What are we fighting and how are we to fight? Because this can be really foreign for us. So here's how the argument goes, okay? Uh, The argument goes that in first century spiritual society, the way demons would work, guys, is that they would destroy God's creation and God's people in very personal and possessive, real invisible ways. That was a scheme in the first century. And so everyone with that scheme in a spiritualistic society, they were afraid of these demons because their scheme was to be very visible and aware to the world. So this first century was like terrified of them. So the way that demons destroyed them was by creating fear in the people. So they would seek to appease or to follow after these demons. But things begin to change over the centuries. And by the 21st century, the way we see demons at work is maybe not the same. And so maybe their tactic is not to become visible and real and possessive, but to make you think they don't even exist. And they sneak through the back door of culture of the 21st century, rather than the front door of the first century. And they subtly take you down through self-destructive ideologies and thoughts, and materialism, governments, education. It sounds extreme though, right? But consider for a moment, one commentator says this, I want you to listen to how plausible maybe this really could be. He says this, you may not see demons in our culture with your eyes, but their schemes show up in movies. And they tell us that the romantic love and that sexual pleasure, man, they're the keys to fulfillment. You may not see them with their eyes, but they stand behind an economic system that teaches us that money is the key to success and happiness. You may not see them with your eyes, but they sit. Their lies sit in a psychologist's chair, offering up ultimate hope and life apart from God. You may not see them with their eyes, but they work in and through governments invading countries or convincing people of policies that harm God's creation and hurt human flourishing. And they may even be in churches behind pulpits, behind computers and notes, teaching you that God wants you to be happy, wants you to have money, for you to be rich, that hell's not real. And the standards of the Bible are for a different time in a different place. That's what he says. And I think that's really, really interesting for us to consider for a moment because the schemes have changed haven't they? You and I can, as a Christian, you're like, yeah, I believe in demons because I'm a person who believes the Bible. But I don't really see them at work. We don't see them with their eyes, but there's something going on behind the scenes. They're the ones who whisper to you, no, 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 it's ridiculous to believe in me. And remember, Satan is really not after your recognition of him. He's after the destruction of you. And he don't care how he does it. He doesn't want accolades of your recognition, acknowledging that it's him behind the scenes. He don't care. As long as he destroys God's creation and God's people, he don't care how he does it. So he'll come through the back window of the 21st century rather than the front door of the first century. So you might be sitting here or you might be watching online today or later on this week. And you think to yourself, Aaron, this really kind of begs the question though, how do you know for sure that demons are real. I'm hearing some of your logic and yeah, I see some of the evil in the world, but how do you like know for sure? Well, let me walk through a a couple things for us here. Um, And let me just give you the first thing. Uh, We know number one, that Jesus was like a real historical figure. We find that from literature, even just outside of Christianity, even other religions write about his his historical existence. And they're writing about that Jesus and his entire ministry was actually built on this fact that spiritual warfare exists. He's casting out demons and he's pushing back darkness. He actually died for sin because sin is a real evil thing that exists. And Jesus fought off Satan himself. He was tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted in the garden. There's an exchange with him and evil. And so we know that it's real in one regard because Jesus in literature tells us that he interacted with these things. And number two, here's more of a philosophical concept, but... We believe that there's really no other plausible explanation for the amount and the intensity of the evil that we see in today's world. So let me unpack this for a moment, because Christianity's understanding of evil is actually the most—it's the most nuanced and uh, it, it's the most full and robust and multidimensional view of evil that we actually have in play. Uh, where the world says, no, it's this issue or it's that issue. Christianity actually says, so hold on, let me, let's address actually what's really wrong. And it gives us a really robust, logical understanding of what's go, actually going on. So let me show you for a moment how people try to explain why evil exists in the world today and why biblically that perspective falls short of telling the whole story. So we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but I need to give you some background and some handles because we're gonna spend two weeks on this one giant passage. And today we're only gonna get from verse 10 to 13, (laughs) just because we gotta lay a framework for we're talking crazy talk. We're saying spiritual forces and schemes of the devil. That's crazy. Or it's the most real thing on the planet. And our entire globe has been duped thinking that they don't exist And they're pointing to everything else, but the ultimate source of what's wrong. Do you see why, how important this is? So here's what the world begins to say. Boston's very own, here's one, Boston's very own B.F. Skinner uh, said this. He was a professor of psychology right here in Harvard from uh, 1958 until his retirement in 1974. He says, what makes us us is the world around us. And that period, all that we are is really environmentally conditioned. And all our problems, including evil, are basically due to the way which we were conditioned. So there's no real sense of supernatural evil. It's just people affecting people. And maybe uh, you went to school and you got a psychology degree and you're like, yeah, I've kind of actually heard that guy. Or yeah, this whole problem of evil is not really supernatural. It's just people affecting people. And you're the product of how your environment conditioned you. And so if you were affected in negative ways, then you're probably going to repeat that to someone else. And then that's what you got created. But the question begs, how did the first conditioning go poorly? How did that happen? Right? And so Skinner would say, sociology explains the evil that we see in the world. And the question is, is he right? Well, others will come in to the conversation and sit down at the table with Skinner and say, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Uh, Evil uh, doesn't originate in sociology it's in biology. It's in biology, they'll say. So the biological determinists would say what makes you you is simply your, it's like your genetic makeup, it's your code, it's your genes. And so therefore, evil uh, comes about biologically. You're, you're bent towards a, a certain thought or, or actions that are harmful to yourself or others. So biological determinists would say your genetic makeup, your chemistry, your biology explains the evil that we see in the world today. So you feel a a bend towards lying because it's in your genes and you feel towards stealing because it's kind of passed down heretically or you want to harm yourself or you harm others. And there's some pathological concerns and it's all just hereditary. It's biology, some will say. Well, then opens the door and another group comes in. They sit down the table. They go, hold on. Neither of you jokers are right. The existential humanist psychologists sit down and they said, no, it's neither biologically or sociologically a disposition towards good or evil. People are just neutral. They're neutral. It's not condition, not right or wrong, just neutral. And so it's a matter of your personal opinion. It's a matter of your personal choices, what makes you. So psychology would say or these psychologists would say it's our thoughts leading to behavior that explains evil that we see in the world. And then finally last are the spiritualists because often they're late to the meeting, I guess. They may say, wait a second, you're experiencing bad things in your life because more than likely there's some demon or some spirit that's been following you around. Your house is haunted. You jack something up. There's someone in the TV, There's something that's going to harm you. And maybe you've heard this line of thinking if you grew up in more charismatic circles where spirit rebuking or casting out or away demons was a common practice. So the spiritualists say, all you jokers are wrong. Spiritual and natural spirituality, supernatural spirituality explains the evil that we see in the world. So which one guys, out of the four, which one's right? How do we explain the evil that exists? Every study we're seeing is a really microcosm of something that's happening. They're trying to give one sliver to explain the problem and then they'll give their solutions. And then we call that education. We say, here's the problem in the world. It's economics. No, no, no. It's education. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's race. No, no, no. It, uh, it's uh, what, what is it? And we create all these studies and then we produce people to study these things. And the question is, which one is Right. See, here in the modern West, you can see the trouble we're having with the problem of evil, right? Where did it exist? What's actually the issue here? And understandably, this is hard. But guys, Christianity, biblically speaking, guys, it doesn't have that problem. Because the Bible actually addresses what's happening in the world in a really full and robust and multifaceted way that actually makes sense to what we see. In fact, guys, if you lean in for just a moment, the Bible actually reveals that each of these ideas that I just mentioned to you are right to some extent and incomplete in another. Right in some way, incomplete in another. God actually reveals in passages like today's text just how multi-dimensional evil actually is. It's not limited to just one of these categories that we read. In a sense, it's all of them. And evil comes at us in every possible direction. It comes in inward, outward, and upward. Inward, outward, upward. For example, the following verses in scripture affirm what we saw in the inward biological claim earlier. Did you know that? The biological determinants are saying, no, there's something that's broken in our minds or what we think or what we feel. We're predispositioned towards certain attitudes and activities. That's what the problem is. When the other specialists are not considering that. And the Bible's like, hold on, no, there's something to this. Jeremiah 17:9 says, the inward biologists, they have something on this. The heart, the Bible says, Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 8:7 says, the mind is set on the flesh, and it's it's hostile to the ways of God and his flourishing for humanity. The mind does not submit to God's ways. Indeed, it, it, it can't even, it doesn't want to. Psalm 51, David, the great psalmist writes this. He says, surely I was sinful from birth. Like he calls himself out. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So yes, we're actually seeing that the Bible affirms the reality that evil in fact does affect you on the inside. On the inside, they're agree, it's agreeing with this biological biological determinist in some regard. Secondly, we also see the following verses affirm some of what we saw in the outward sociological claims. Outward sociological claims. Ezekiel 22, 7 says this. It's calling out the culture for the problem that it's seeing. It's calling out relationships. Listen, it says, father and mother are treated with contempt in your land. Your land's a problem. Your government, your people are a problem, it's, this text is saying. Not of America in general, this text is not saying, but it's agreeing that there are some sociological problems. Mother and fathers are treated with contempt in your land. The sojourners, they suffer extortion in the midst because of you guys. And then fatherless and the widow, they're wronged in your land, is what Ezekiel 22 says. So the Bible's affirming, yes, there are definitely sociological factors and there's biological factors. Yes, the Bible's affirming there's an evil outside of me and there's an evil inside of me. It has an effect on me. And then lastly, today's passage affirms what we saw with the spirituality claim. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood alone, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So yes, as sci-fi and crazy as it is, the Bible actually does affirm, guys, The Bible affirms there's real and spiritual and evil forces above me. So can you guys just see for a moment, we're kind of dialing back into the text. I know I took you on a side street and I just drove around a ton block. You're like, where are we in the sermon? But I want you to show show all of that because we have a huge problem. We've all in our jobs, in our government, our education, our, our medical practices, our law practice, we're trying to figure out what's the problem and how do we fix it? That's what we're trying to unpack here. And do you see now why God through Paul in today's text starts in verse 10, the way he does, look at it again. Finally, he says, be strong. You're going to need strength, but it's not your strength. He says, be strong in the Lord. It's in his ways, how he navigates it. It's in the strength, it says, of his might. Verse 11, that's why we put on this whole armor of God, not flesh, but the spiritual armor. It's God's armor. Put on the armor of God. Why? that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Those psychological and sociological, biological, material, spiritual schemes that we just mentioned, those schemes. Verse 12, for again, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood alone, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, against the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But guys, in our modern Western world, the world you Live in, and I live in. We have so much trouble with what I just read, and it's because we actually have narrowed our understanding to thinking that everything has a natural cause. Guys, do you do you know that that's like a distinctly Western thought? Like you go to Asia, Latin America, you go you go somewhere else, and like they're way more nuanced and broad-pictured about what the problem is in the world. And it's the West that we're like, Mm-mm, there's no way there's something supernatural. It's got, it's everything has a natural cause. And so there, everything therefore only has a scientific explanation only. We're actually, oddly enough, we're the narrow-minded ones. You take the entire world and you put us in a room together. The West is standing in a small particular side by herself and we've narrowed ourselves off. So it's interesting, often I used to think before I was a Christian, when I was 20, that Christians were the narrow-minded ones and then I realized, well, wait a second, maybe I'm narrow-minded because I've cut myself off to what the majority of the world actually considers. So things like crime, right? And violence and greed and racism and war and cruelty, they must have a natural cause, the world says, right? And so we think, okay, because they are natural causes, we can fix them through natural means. So we legislate only, we educate only, we medicate only all good things, but not ultimate things in of themselves. And we're panicked as a people to try to figure out how do we fix the brokenness in the world? There's one author, uh, brings up a really interesting claim. Um, We often teach expositioning through scripture, but the fact we're spending two weeks on this, I wanted to give you this quote for a moment to show you that other non-Christians are leaning into what the Bible already explains. Like they're picking up on, something's not right here. There's a guy named Andrew... Del Banco, and he's a great intellectual, secular liberal at Columbia University. And his, in his book, he writes called The Death of Satan, uh, he says these words. He says, listen, because as Westerners, we've jettisoned the idea of a supernatural evil, we just got rid of it. We don't even like to use the word like evil. But as the century goes on, it's actually gotten harder and harder for us to say that holocausts, ethnic cleansings, Invasion in Ukraine, serial killings. He didn't say the invasion of Ukraine part. I put that in there. Serial killings, they must just be just bad natural causes. Like they had a bad psychological history or a sociological one. The idea that all evil has natural consequences like biological, psychological, social. He says it's wearing thin. It doesn't give us the answers nor the solutions we need. And guys, this is a non Christian, through general observation, affirming what the Bible already states plainly for us in verse 12, we don't struggle against flesh and blood alone. It's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. It's against the powers of this dark world, against the sport, the forces of evil. You guys picking up on this now? You guys seeing kind of the weight of this? Our world is scrambling to figure out what is going on and we're being affected by it daily. You know, one of the things that sociologists used to say is that racism and violence emerge mainly and almost only from a lack of education. It's what used to be the statements. They'd say it's the primitive way. It's an uncivilized, it's the uneducated people that are the violent and the racists. Then we had World War II and we had the Holocaust. We had the death camps. And that arose out of perhaps one of the most educated and cultured nations that there was on the earth at that time. So it can't just be a problem of education. Take the U.S. for example, uh, we're in the top 10 most educated countries in the world. We're in the top 10 wealthiest nations in the entire world. 198 nations, were like top 10%, uh, top 10. Uh, we're in the top 15% in healthcare around the world. And still, We have violence and greed and poverty and racism and abortion running rampant. Guys, we can't even agree on the value of human life outside the womb or inside the womb. And we are one of the most educated, wealthy, medically-minded nations. Even further, guys, turn on the news and you watch in the 21st century in 2022, you watch one nation invade another. And guys, Russia has one of the best mass education systems in the world. Guys, they produce a literacy rate of 98%. That puts us to shame. It can't be an education problem. Guys, 98%, that's higher than most Western uh, European countries. And guys, listen, Russia had both education and legislation in place with Ukraine to keep a war from happening. So it can't be legislation is the issue here or education is the issue. There's something else going wrong, There's something else. So as we're seeing time and time again, country after country, century after century, no amount of legislation, education, medication can ultimately, some of those things are helpful, but they're not ultimately solving or explaining the evil that we see. Why? Because problems like this are not just natural. They are supernatural. They do affect us. They affect us in us, around us, above us. It's because of that, guys, that we must guard and fight with supernatural means. That's what the armor of God is all about. Does that make sense? That's what we're trying to unpack this week and next week. So while the world is paying trillions of dollars evaluating our problems and solutions for the evil we see, God tells us the problem and the solution for what we see in the very first chapters of the Bible. He tells us where evil comes from and that the solution for that evil is what in Christ has to offer. And that's the interchange of the human heart. That's the outer change that that begins to affect in sociological problems. And that Christ actually has the upper hand as the more powerful one that will bring upper change to the spiritual forces at work in everything. God tells us in the Bible, in fact, the book that he preserved for humanity to have this understanding, by the way, he preserved this book for us in the Bible. And he explained to us that evil came from the free will of two races of beings that God created. Evil came from angels and humans. The book of Isaiah, it's a book in the Bible and the book of Revelation in the Bible tells us this, that some of the angels fell from a relationship with God by exercising their free will. They turned away from God because they wanted to replace God as the ruler of creation. Like you thought the, The the capital invasion was bad, which it was in the United States. But this one was a revolt against God himself. One third of the created angels, the scripture tells us, rebelled against God and they wanted a seat on the throne. God exercised his justice and removed them from his presence and the plan that he had given to them. And now these fallen angels are called demons. The leading demon named Lucifer and his followers are real they're personal, they're supernatural beings and they exist in the world and they seek to do this. They wanna destroy God's creation. They wanna destroy God's image bearers, which is humanity. And he wants to destroy the spiritual family. Why? Because they hate God. They hate God for his position of power that they wanted. And so they don't want his truth or his glory to prevail because they know that it will bring their ultimate destruction. And so they mask themselves. They change their schemes from century to centuries to century to all of a sudden we get to this point that we don't even think they exist anymore and they have us in their grasp. That's the scary seriousness of what we are talking about in this text. And we learn from humanity that we also brought evil into play. Scripture says in Genesis 1 verse 27 that God created humans good, that we were good and that we did not have a sinful nature. We didn't have a biological predisposition towards sin. We were free and whole and good. However, Genesis 3 records that Lucifer, this fallen angel, the leader of the fallen angels, he wanted to continue to lead a rebellion, not just in the spiritual world, but in the physical world. So he led Adam and Eve to rebellion against God as well. And by this rebellion, sin entered into their nature. And they were immediately hit with the sense of spiritual confusion, as the sin began to affect their minds and their hearts and their actions, and they blamed God for what happened, although they did it and they blamed each other and they turned on one another, all in the first couple of chapters of the Bible. And so, when Adam and Eve had children, Adam's image and his likeness was passed through to his children, including his newfound sinful nature. And from generation to generation, this sinful nature has been passed down through into all humanity. Romans 5:12 says that sin entered the world through one man and it keeps going. And in this way death came to all people because sin came to all people. And we're seeing this death play out on a worldwide scale, spiritual death, emotional death, relational death, and physical death. So friends, listen, it's because Christianity has this full and robust and multifaceted understanding of sin and evil that we are called to do two things in this passage. Because of these realities, we've got a number one, we have to guard our self. This is what exists. You must guard yourself from the effects of evil. And number two, you must fight against the effects of evil. By the way, I know how crazy that I'm sounding this Sunday, by the way. <laughs> Very much aware how crazy this is. But Paul gives us this final passage in this book. And it's not like an appendix to them, by the way. They're not like, oh, why have we been talking about Jesus this whole time? And then bam, spiritual darkness, death, demons. Like, and they're not like, like thrown off guard because they know that when we understand what the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ, it makes sense that he didn't just do something for us, for the world before every cosmic thing in existence. God created all things. And so God's redemptive plan wasn't just for people. He's going to fix the entire thing, the entire thing, every force of darkness in you. That's what Christ dealt with in sin. He dealt with the sin in you. He put it on the cross and he killed it. And so we still have this nature we're wrestling with, but its power is over. And so you and I choose sin, but we don't have to. God dealt with the evil in us. He's trying to deal with it in the world through people. And then eventually with all cosmic powers and evil, he's gonna destroy it all. That's why it makes sense to them how this goes in succession in this book. Okay, that's the first thing. (laughs) Who are we fighting? We gotta speed up a little bit unless you guys packed your dinner and you guys could hang out with me a little bit longer. That's the first thing. What are we fighting? Number two, So that was who. Number two is what? Are we fighting? That was who, but what exactly? Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. You got to put on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes. This is key. Schemes of the devil. So we're not just fighting the who, demon, devil. Not just who, but what. It's his schemes. And guys, we're going to get incredibly practical. We went like not super deep, but we went like super high, like super, super 30,000 foot view over everything we're seeing. And now we're going to get really personal into you. You, how do we see the schemes of the enemy work with you, your heart, your mind? What's it look like for you? Guys, what we fight is so clear here. It says schemes, schemes, not one, many schemes. Schemes. So we've got to spend some time on this. That word for schemes here in the Greek is this idea of method. It's methodia is actually the Greek word here. It's the devil's methods. It's his strategies against destroying God's creation, God's people, God's glory. And so the devil, therefore, he has like an arsenal of like a portfolio of strategies that he wants to throw at you. And he keeps changing them over and over and over and over. But I want to go for a moment. And I bet you in this room, In a moment, uh, or online, we're gonna go through a list of these strategies. And I bet you that every single person in this room has dealt with the very strategy that I'm gonna mention. Because this is how pervasive it is for all humanity. We can say, I've had that thought. No, I I actually, hold on, hold on. I I have felt this happen to me before. And so what I want you to do is I wanna wanna show you what the scheme looks like. And then I wanna show you the remedy, the remedy to how to fight. what's good for it. So there's two basic categories that we're going to unpack this with. Two things we're going to ask you questions about. Um, Satan uses the, the categorical schemes of temptation and accusation. Two things, accusation and temptation. And temptation is essentially, temptation gets you to have too high view of yourself. Like you're the boss, you're the king or queen, and you make aim decisions. So temptation is the enemy trying to get you to think so big of yourself that you just like I'll do what I want. That's what temptation is. Accusation is the flip end of that. Accusation is the devil's way of trying to get you to think too low of yourself. You're trash. You're terrible. Of course, you're not married. Of course, your life is going chaos. Of course, you're a failure. Accusing you. Of who you are. What your worth is. What's going on in your life? too high of you or too low of you. Temptation and accusation. In temptation, temptation, Satan is actually hiding God's holiness from you and how much he actually hates sin. And so in temptation, he hides from you God and he upplays God's love. God doesn't care, just sin. He forgives, that's his job, right? Just whatever, that's what temptation is. An accusation, He hides God's love from you. An accusation, he hides God's love for you. He plays up God's holiness so big and his wrath on sin so high that you just hide from God's love. You don't confess your sin anymore because you think God's just like, yeah, of course you did that again. Yeah, because you're trash. I'm tired of you keep sitting like this. And that's what you feel. And that's accusation. It's the enemy playing up God's holiness so much so in his wrath towards sin that you forget about God's love. So let's get really practical in your face. How does this work exactly? The schemes of the enemy towards you. Thomas Brooks, 17th century pastor wrote a book. In that book, it was called The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he discussed about 70 schemes and then the practical and scriptural remedy for each. I am not gonna go through all 70. Some of you just panicked, calm down. I'm not gonna go through all 70. I watched you look at your face. You're like, dude, how long is this kind of service gonna be? Six hours and you're fine, okay? Christ on the cross for six hours, six hour sermon, okay? Just kidding, awkward moment for a joke, but let's just keep keep pushing through, okay? So I won't go through all of them, but I'm just gonna pick a few from the temptation category and the accusation category. And I wanna show you some of the remedy of what this looks like. So let's look at the temptation category. How does this work for you? First category, how does Satan tempt you, you specifically? I'll give you the scheme what it looks like for you practically so that you can notice it when it happens and you can fight against it. Sound good? This is sci-fi crazy stuff, but it's real. Here we go. First device, first device. It's called this. Satan shows you the bait, but he hides the hook. It's the first one. I know they're all up on here, but let me walk through them for you. Satan shows you the bait, but he hides the hook, which means he can get you to look at short-term pleasures or what that is, the bait, if you would, whatever that is for you. He shows you the bait and then he hides from your conscious and your understanding the long-term misery of what will happen when you keep eating that bait. Everyone knows that one, right? Like everyone's like, yeah, bro, I've dealt with, I've dealt with that one. So then Paul goes on to say, you've got to fight it. How do you fight this? You go on, you fight it with the belt of truth. So the bait is, eat this, you're going to be fulfilled. And then he hides from you the long-term effects. The Bible says, put on the belt of truth. And Psalm 16 is that, this for me. So I don't go look at pornography or cheat on my wife or steal money from the church. This is what tells me, Bible tells me, Aaron, God makes known the path of life to you. That's where life is found. In his presence, not in sin, not in pornography, not in adultery, not in stealing. Not that those things are happening, but these are temptations possibly, right? You make known the path of life in your presence, God, not my sin, there's fullness of joy that says at your right hand, God, not in sin, there's pleasures forevermore. So that's how I fight off temptation. I look at the bait, and I'm like, man, I wanna go back into the same ways I used to live before I was a Christian. I wanna go look at this thing. I wanna do this thing with my body. I wanna go do this. And I can take the bait off the hook and it's like, mm, that's a hook. I know what that does. I take the belt of truth and I put it on. Just side note, I'm not trying to be uh, grotesque here or crude, but I just want you to notice, what does the belt cover? What does the belt cover? Uh, the belt covers uh, two areas that get us in the most trouble. The areas of sexual desires and bodily desires. So it's whatever you have an appetite for, you think I'm just going to go after. If I feel this way or I have this urge or I have this desire, I'm just going to go do it. And so the belt of truth is just not just a concept, but it's around an area, the appetite, kind of your stomach, kind of be metaphorical there, your appetite, your desire, whatever you feel, and the area of your privates. I know it's extreme or r- random thought, but I didn't, build the, I didn't build the metaphor, by the way. i just telling you the net- metaphor, okay? I'm just telling you. But it's covering two areas that get us in the most trouble with this very point. So you put truth around what often leads us to the hook. Does that make sense, guys? Does this make sense how you kind of fight these things? Okay, so here's the second one. That's the first one. The second one is that Satan tries to get you to rationalize your sin and call it a virtue. So here's how it works for you. You're like, I'm not gossiping. I'm just sharing my concern for this person. I'm not lying. Dude, come on, man. I'm just protecting everyone from the heartache that the truth will bring to them if I say the truth. So I'm not gonna tell my wife about my addiction or my husband, or I'm not gonna really come out with what I'm dealing with. I'm just protecting everyone. I'm not lying. Or this one, we see this in our culture often and I'm not making light of this. I'm just showing you how the enemy works. He says, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. I'm just trying to relax after a hard and stressful day. Everyone does it, right? So Satan tries you to rationalize your sin, make it a virtue. Thirdly, uh, Satan shows you the sins of Christians, of other Christians, uh, of leaders. You can go online and you can see this church fell or that pastor fell or some Christian, you know, that was a leader in your youth group or your life or someone in your coworkers. And you say to yourself, well, he or she did that sin too. So no one's really, you know, that pure. It seems like God forgave them and God still loves them and God's still blessing them and using them. So the enemy just kind of points out other people. Hey, look at them. Yeah, they did that. They're okay, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, what about this one? Oh, they sin too. Yeah, they're okay. It just keeps your mind going away from the Lord. Fourthly, guys, and this is a huge one, huge one. Satan seeks to overstress the love of God. So you say to yourself, I'm just gonna sin. I'm gonna do it. God will just forgive me. That's his job, right? He died on the cross for my sins. He loves me. It's not a big deal. Guys, this is a huge one, is it not? Has anyone ever just, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand. I'm just gonna raise mine. But like, just to be honest with you, I, this is a very common one, right? Just God loves you. It's not that big of a deal. When you're tempted, you're just thinking like, yeah, I did last week. Just gonna confess this uh, during communion time. And then I'm just gonna be just fine. So Satan overstresses the love of God and you enter into sin. Fifth, Satan seeks to make you bitter over your suffering. Makes you bitter over your suffering. So think about the hardships of your life sometimes when you're most stressed or there's a hardship. Here's what happens. You're like, bro, I've suffered in my life and I deserve this outlet, man, I'm serving my family. I'm serving my kids. I'm serving my boss. Life is hard. I deserve this. So you steal, steal on your taxes. You lie. Guys, this is one of the reasons why you often see in culture prominent and powerful people having affairs. Why? Because they said to themselves, no, no one works as hard as I do. I'm always making sacrifices. When is it time for me to care about what I want? And then we enter into sin. Because if we just take a pause, do you feel any of these yourself? Like, or am I just like not even close to the mark? Head nods or no head nods, right? Why is this common for all of us in the room? It's gotta just be sociology, right? It's just education. That's the, that's the problem. Do you see what I'm saying? How can we all in this room agree that we felt these things? We've thought these things. How? How? Something else at play here. There is something else at play. Number six, Satan tries to show up and show you how many non-Christians, ooh, this is so hard for me. I'm just gonna be honest with you. If you're non-Christian, I love you. I'm so glad you're here online. So happy that you're here. But listen, this, this was for me. Satan shows you how many non-Christians seem to be living great lives. They got that house. I'm up here. We sold our stuff to come to Boston, plant a church. I don't got a house. I don't got a lot of money. Neither do you. You live here too. It's not a pity party for me. It's just We're all sitting down having a pity party together. It's hard to live here. And then I look over, I'm like, man, if I just, if I did that job, I'd be getting paid tons of money. I could buy whatever I want. Right? And you're like, man, I'd, maybe life would be that. By the way, that's what social media is for me sometimes. I just scrolling through, looking at everybody else's great life, and I just have a pity party by myself. That's an attack of the enemy. And so we think, man, I just want what I want too. And if they didn't play by the rules and they got all that stuff, then maybe I don't have to play by the rules either. By the way, that like, what is the the book of Proverbs is all about? They're like, why are they getting these things? And God's like, well, things are not gonna work out for them in the end. Like, that's what the whole thing is about God's wisdom for us. Last one, number seven in this category. You're like, there's another category? Yes, there is. Good luck for you. Last one, seventh one, Satan tries to get you to compare one part of your life to another part of your life. So it says, look, I'm very good over here. Look how hard I work and I serve other area. And like, this is my, this is my goodness. This is my morality. This is my kindness. And so this little area over here, it it weighs it out. It weighs it out. Like, look how hard I'm studying, but like, it's okay for this porn addiction, this drinking addiction, this overspending addiction. It's just fine. Because look at all of this I'm contributing. I'm doing good. Because these are all the schemes that the devil uses to tempt us away from God. And do any of these sound familiar? Yes. And why? So let's flip the coin. I only have three brief ones for you here. But what about accusation? Because this is real too for many of us. Accusation. Here are just three short of the accusational arsony that comes at you. How does Satan accuse you personally? Number one, Satan tries to cause you to look more at your sin than your savior. By the way, all the parenting books that you read, uh, they they tell you to give your child one compliment for every one criticism because if you don't balance them like that, then they end up hating themselves. And so what you need to do is actually give them four or five compliments, it says, for every one criticism. Well, why is that? Why do do secular parenting books tell you that? They don't tell you you just give one to one. You actually have to give four or five positive affirmations for every one. Why why, Why do these books say that? Well, it's because the criticisms really lodge themselves where the, compla- the compliments that don't. And the biblical reason for this is because we feel like something's actually wrong with us, and children feel that. They feel like something's wrong with them. And so in a similar thought, what we're seeing is that for every one time you look at your sin, you need five times look at your Savior. Does that make sense? For every time you're brought up in your heart about some sin that you did and you feel terrible about yourself, pick your head up. Pick your head up. Look at the cross. That's why he hung high, so you can see them above every amount of your sin that you've done. He knew that sin. He came out of the grave, he left it there. So look high. Stop looking at your sin and rolling around in shame. Look high at the cross and see that God lovingly and proudly died in your place so that you could not have you accusations of trash, not good enough, unworthy. No, 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 he died to change the title for you. So look at the savior more than your sin. Number two, Satan tries this to make you think that the troubles you're going through is actually a punishment. God's trying to get you. You didn't learn sanctification as a kid. You didn't learn patience growing up. I'm gonna get you. You didn't tie the church last week. Ooh, I'm going to get you this week. We start thinking that. We think, man, I gave my parents a ton of heartache growing up. Maybe that's why my kids are so hard right now. If I spent more time with them, if I, and here comes the onslaught of attacks and you're just getting pelted. So whatever's happening wrong in your life, it must be a punishment from God. So you say to yourself, well, this wouldn't have happened to me if I didn't do X, Y, and Z. Last one here, Satan tries to make you think that you can't possibly be a Christian if you struggle the way you do. You can't possibly be a Christian with the inner struggles, with the same sex attraction. You can't be a Christian with what you've done in the past, with the addictions you have. You you possibly can't be a Christian, right? Because of the feelings you have. If I were a real Christian, I wouldn't have any of these thoughts or any of these desires. I would actually be a real Christian. Have you ever thought that? You ever thought that? Why can't I beat the sin addiction? Maybe it's not because I'm not a Christian. Guys, these are, do you recognize any of these? Right. And if you do, it's because he's playing you, he's playing me, just like he does with all of creation. John White, he's a Christian counselor. He wrote a book years ago about how the devil works. And he says this, it's a really cool analogy. I kind of like this. I'm not gonna get over there and do it with that piano, but just keep in mind that piano right there. Imagine you open the lid of that piano right there and you sing a note into it. Not gonna do that now, but just imagine. Imagine. And whatever particular string your voice is attuned to will actually vibrate in unison. So you sing a B flat and the B flat string will vibrate. The string that matches the note of your voice will vibrate when you haven't even touched it. And what White says is the enemy knows what strings you have and without touching them, he begins to vibrate them. That's what the devil does. He makes a flawed person worse. He calls out to these strings you have through temptation and through accusation. He's playing you like a piano, he's playing you. And once you narrow in, I'm not gonna sit this way. Aha, this one's a, uh, a hook. Uh, no, this one's the Instagram one about comparing myself. And once you get that, he just changes the scheme. So I'm not trying to tell you, learn the schemes and you'll be fine. I'm saying, put on armor. So no matter what scheme happens, you're safe. Make sense? So number three, How do we fight? And we have to end pretty briefly here. And next week, I'm gonna teach you how to fight. So basically, I set you up for a little bit of failure this week. Give me some grace. But here's what's wrong. Come next week and figure out how to fix it. But I wanna give you some handle so I don't just bail on you this week. Because next week, we're actually gonna go through the breastplate and what that means and the the helmet and the sword and the shoes and the belt. We're gonna go through that next week, way more in depth. But I, I had to paint the picture for this first. So how are we fighting? Part one, verse 10. Finally, be strong. In the Lord. There's the emphasis. Be strong in the Lord and in his strength and in his might. Put on the armor of God, of God, not your armor, of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up, again, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. There's the emphasis, that you'll be able to withstand in the day of evil. Having done all, you stand firm. Question Why does Paul use? a military metaphor of armor and fighting. It's not because, speaking of fighting, maybe the the children screaming in the background. (laughs) He doesn't use this metaphor because he thinks military stuff is cool. Paul's not interested in glorifying the horrors of war. I know we see some in our American history or maybe you go down South for a little bit and you kind of see all kinds of guns and flags and war. And and Paul's not trying to glorify in war and tell you how cool it is. He is saying, however, that war, armor and fighting and sword and uh, the war is the only metaphor that gets across the seriousness, the seriousness in the real nature of what we're up against. To show you he's like, this is serious. Guard yourself, fight back or you'll end up living a defeated life. That's what he's doing. So look at verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God. And this armor is symbolic. You don't walk outside. You're like, I'm, have you guys ever seen the movie? Uh, I forgot actually what the movie was. There was like this little invasion. Uh, it had um, uh, Mel Gibson in it. It was like a little invasion. Anybody help me? And Signs. I always can count on you for a movie, Nick. I love you, bro. Signs. There's like this invasion. And these little kids put on these like little hats with, um, what are they? Someone help me with this illustration. <laughs> put like tin foil on their hat. And they're like, that's what's going to rescue them. Uh, this, this is not like a real metaphor of what you actually put on. It's all symbolic, but what's it referring to? This symbolism of the armor is referring to putting on the benefits and the privileges of the gospel. What Christ did for you on the cross actually protects your mind from thinking you're trash what it did for you thinking that you have to be the governor of your life or your future is not going to end up well. So you're anxiously trying to figure out the future plans when you graduate and what you do next. You're not anxious because you put on the armor that God actually has a path for your future. So you put on Christ, the privileges and the benefits of the gospel. You put on his promises, what he says about you, about your future, about the world. You cash in on it. So you put on a a new believing, if you would. You put on a new believing that leads you to a new behaving because of your new being. Does that make sense? Y'all follow that? You got a new being in Christ. You're new in him. You got a new identity. So you start believing a certain way and then you start behaving a certain way. And this is how it helps you deal with the effects of the enemy. Um, Example that happens often in our church. And I'm not trying to pick on any individually, one of you or our Cedarville friends or anybody, but you've, you've been in this conversation on one end, the, the mature Christian or the young Christian. You've been in this example here. You, you sit down hypothetically, you're a young Christian, let's say for this uh, illustration, you're a young Christian, and you, you talk to a mature Christian. And you say, mature Christian, my life is just falling apart. Here's what's happened to my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my school, my life, it's just I need help. The mature Christian should be very sympathetic. They shouldn't minimize anything you're saying, but you'll begin to notice something they, they do after they listen and they ask questions. They'll start gently reminding you of scriptural truth. Sometimes it's annoying, isn't it, right? Because it, it kind of pans out like this. They're like, well, God's promises say blank. Do you believe that? And you as the young Christian, you're like, duh, I go to the same church you do. Like, of course I believe that. And the mature Christian's like, well, hey, do you realize that Jesus has done this for you? You're like, yes, I believe the same thing you do. And the Christian, mature Christian will calmly say, well, I wanna remind you of Romans eight twenty eight that God works in all things for his glory and your good. And you're like, yeah, "Well, how is that helping me in my situation?" And the conversation just goes back and forth, Christian truth and like, "Yeah, I believe that." But but what they're what you're not noticing is that what's happening here is the older Christian, the older Christian is helping the younger put on the armor of truth. Because they actually haven't put it on. They just have it in their house. So like, here here's the helmet. I know what the helmet is. Well, put it on your stinking head. That's what's ha- not. That's not a attack towards any of you, but that we all have been in that conversation. You're coaching someone's like, "I believe that." I'm like, "You you do, but you you don't. <laughs> like, you do in here, but not in here." Put on the armor. I know you believe the truth in your head, but do you believe it in your heart? And that's what Christian counseling is. That's what CG is. That's what DNA is for our church. That's what these groups are, so that we help each other put off falsehood and put on truth. Two more short things we're going to point out. Verse 13, last two things, verse 13. says, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, when the day of evil comes, you will stand. Notice the phrasing of that. When the evil day comes. You're supposed to put on the armor before the big battle, not during the big battle. You gotta be ready on the front end. And I will say, if you talk to Haley and Bradley, this was essential for them. On the front end, you realize that our friends that are in India, they, they, they like, bought and paid for a counselor before they even moved and they were having no marital problems or anything. This is how wise they are. They're studied up. They've got their scriptures. They're like, what's true? What's right? They called the Eisen family and our family beforehand. What's right? What's true? Help me believe what's right. You remember that, bro? Like they're trying to, they're preparing themselves for battle. And it's been hard because there's been so many things of chaos that's happening. You've got to be ready on the front end. So when the arrows start flying and the enemies broke through the, the breach and they're hurling spears at you, guys, it's way too late for you. To be like, Excuse me for a second while I slip into something more inappropriate for this occasion. Like, it makes no sense, guys. It's too late. Church, that's why we study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's why in our CG, we unpack the application for your life because, in, listen, if you didn't know, CG guys really... I'm preaching like crazy today. Just bear with me, okay? Guys, CG really is, it's not telling you more truth. It's telling you to put it on, put it on. What do you actually believe about this? In DNA group is you didn't put it on. Why didn't you put it on? What are you believing instead will help you? You see what I'm saying, guys? That's what this church is built around. It's God's word and God's truth. And we've got to put it on. If not, we're going to be spiritually wiped out. We're going to find ourselves tortured and tormented and enslaved all kinds of sins. So last thing, it says this, the armor must be the armor of God. It doesn't just say armor. It says the armor of God in his strength, in his might. Because if you're trying to deal with your problems with your own weapons, your own logic, you're gonna get beat up. Guys, listen, most satanic attacks is actually going on in your mind. Yes, in the real world, but also in your mind. Uh, satanic attacks are like this invasion of your imagination. That's what worry is. You ever struggle sleeping one night? And you start imagining all the terrible things that's gonna to happen to your life. You're like, well, if this happens, if this happens, if not plan for this. And you're like three hours later and you're like, how did I get to wherever country you are struggling with? Something? You're like, how did I even get to this point in my, my thoughts? That's what we're seeing happen. We must fight worry biblically. Guys, we can't put common sense on to fight with worry. We can't just say, well, shouldn't, shouldn't get worried because the Bible says not to worry. And oh, I shouldn't just cry over spilled milk or, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh, this could be worse. Or, oh, hold on. How about this one? In your willpower, you fight worry with your thousand plans, your backup plans, your contingency plans. So that's how you deal with your worry. It's in your own strength and that has nothing to do with the armor of God. So guys, we have to, we have to be prepared. We have to be wise. And here's my last, very last thing pointing us to Christ. They say that there was this great Roman captain of old. Trajan was his name, great Roman captain. And when he was on the battlefield and he noticed some of his men were hurt, he would take off his own armor, guys, and he would put it on his wounded men. He would stand over them, making sure that they were protected. He would tear up his own garments and use them as bandages to cover his men. And listen, That's nothing compared to what Jesus has done for you. Because rather than tearing his garments to help your wounds, he tore himself to cover your wounds. He took the spear that was meant for you and he took it into his side through his heart so that all of your debts, all of your sins, all of those temptations you listen to, all of the accusations you're getting beat up by could be paid and covered for you. Because Jesus Christ made himself vulnerable and accessible and took off the armor and laid bare for you, you can be protected and covered in him. This is our God. So when you put on the armor, you're putting on Christ, his righteousness, his will, his ways, his truth. You're being encompassed and covered by Christ. And this is what he laid bare on the cross for you. Church, friends, guests, put on the armor of God. Let's pray.